Well, it's great to see all of you. Uh, if you're new here, um, my name is Josh White. I'm actually a pastor of a church in the amazingly bizarre city, Portland, Oregon. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. I was actually con- like just noticing uh, some of the profound differences uh, of Door of Hope and Reliance. Uh, the, the first major difference is just the sheer lack of facial hair in this place. Uh, and I was impressed to see Ted just wearing a really a handsome beard. He looks good. Uh, and then, uh, oh man, the other difference, this, is, this was a big one. Um, you, guys have, uh, you guys have little, I don't even know what you call them. What do you call them? Your little paper things? The bulletin. I, we don't have bulletins because we, we live in a city that's so obnoxiously environmental that people would complain about it. And we, when we started communion, we started with the plastic cups, but we had people collecting all the cups at the end of the service because they thought it was so wasteful that we would utilize plastic. So now everyone gets to share um, a juice trough and dip their bread in it, um, and, which is... Uh, it's cool. I mean, we have beautiful ceramic cups, but it's always like a little gross, especially when you get the visitor who doesn't know and comes up and just drinks out of the cup, which actually happens far more regularly than you can even imagine. And it really stinks when you're the one behind them because you're just like, oh man, that's unclean, unclean. Uh, well, it's always great to be down here. I I actually am energized by the opportunities to go and speak uh, in different places uh, around the U.S. And uh, for me, vacation is not not serving, but just uh, going and serving in different places. Um, and uh, for, it's just cool to just be reminded. I was in Detroit two weeks ago and to see how God is moving and how the Holy Spirit is drawing people to himself and uh, how he, uh, in his sovereign brilliance, uh, functions through the particular context of the community, but the same gospel, the same Jesus is being proclaimed and people's lives are being turned upside down um, by a God who has proven his love by his willingness to identify himself through his son with us broken people. Uh, it's an incredible thing. Well, I'm excited to, uh, to speak to you today about something that obviously is dear to my heart because um, uh, for those of you who do know me and know anything about my background, my background, I, I'm not a guy who sought out ministry. Um, I became a believer later in life uh, at 28 years old. Uh, I my background was I moved to Seattle when I was 20 to make a name for myself and uh, pers- pursuing music. Uh, got signed uh, to Mercury Records uh, when I was 22 years old in 1996. And um, I just, uh, or excuse me, 1995. And I, I am a, a guy whose background really is all around music. So when I came to faith, um, I got plugged into this little Calvary Chapel uh, in Seattle in Wallingford. Uh, and the, the music was um, by far the most alarming and disturbing thing um, about my newfound faith in Jesus. And I, I honestly remember one specific occasion where there was a particularly horrible song being sung. And this, uh, this woman, I, you would sit in the back of the, of the room, and I would try to come in um, after worship was over. But I just, uh, unlucky me, I showed up early. And this woman turns to me and says, 
um, she, she nudges me and she goes, don't you get excited that we just get to worship Jesus? We get to sing this song forever in heaven. And I was like, your heaven is my hell, lady. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, I'm like, why can't we redeem the Beatles or Radiohead? I, I think Jesus probably likes the Beatles better than this song. I'm, I'm, conv- I'm absolutely compelled that this is not healthy for anyone's soul. And um, so I, I really had this weird, even worship, I just didn't understand it. Because it wasn't pop music and it wasn't hymns. It was like this weird 80s kind of Maranatha stuff. And, I, um, and some of you are like, I, I hate this guy right now. I just hate him. <laughs> You're like, these are the songs of my youth. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, and so I, I, I really struggled. With, but my pastor um, was a fan, had been a fan of my band. And he, when he found out I was going to his church, he asked me to do music at the church. And I'm like, no way. Uh, and so reluctantly, God really, a, about a year into my faith, I had a massive what I would call, I may have gotten saved a year earlier, but I had like a conversion experience where I came to understand for the first time the call to surrender all, uh, to the call to the good death. And, and, and in that moment, I realized that I was still living very selfishly and trying to achieve success and fame, uh, but you know, thinking that I could utilize Jesus to do that. And the Lord just really transformed my heart and my mind, softened my heart, uh, toward the things that I didn't get about the church. And I went on this mission trip to Russia, and I um, ended up writing my first worship song, which is a song um, that some of you might know called The Beauty of Simplicity. And when I wrote that song, um, that it just opened up this floodgate, and I just started writing, like, I don't know, probably two to four songs a week, if not more. And, um, and since I wrote that song, you know, at this point I've released, I think, eight eight worship albums and then just wrote my first record for another um, artist and we're in the process of writing another worship album for another one of our worship leaders at the church. Uh, and it's been a, you know, this awesome journey of discovering what worship truly is. And uh, when I got back from Russia, my pastor, I, I finally agreed to do worship and I, I said I would only do the early morning prayer service for seven months. I would just lead worship at 6.30 in the morning for like eight people. And that was kind of how I got. And then he finally convinced me to do it on a Sunday morning. And I didn't know better, so I introduced eight new songs the first Sunday. <laughs> that also is just not generally healthy because I got a lot of really mean letters. Uh, and, um, but that began kind of my journey into worship. Now, you know, jump forward, I, I ended in, in, entered into my first full-time uh, job in ministry six months after my wife became a believer uh, in Spokane, Calvary Chapel, Spokane. And there, Ken Ortiz, the pastor there, um, asked me to teach for the first time. And I was like, no way. And when I first started leading worship, I wouldn't even look at the audience. I thought it was, I was such a performer in my 20s. I thought the only appropriate position before Jesus is to pretend I didn't exist. And so I would just stare at my feet and just like, just get through it, you know. And, uh, uh, and Ken's like, Josh, I think you need to teach on worship. And I was like, I realized as I began preparing for this, and this is clear back in 2000 and 2003, 
uh, like February of 2003, first time I ever preached. I threw up twice before I preached. That's how terrified I was. Um, literally like 15 minutes before I preached, I threw up. And I was like, this is the worst thing. Why am I doing this to myself? But in that time of preparation, the Lord actually spoke a very specific word to me about what worship is. And the definition that he put on my heart, it was one of these moments where not through reading, I mean, I was still a relatively new believer. I hadn't been reading anything but the scriptures. And God just kind of gave a definition to me, and it's always, I've, I've never changed my position on it. Um, and that was, you know, whatever, uh, a long time ago. I can't even, I'm so bad at math, I can't count. What is it, 10, 12, 11 years ago? Uh, and... The definition that the Lord gave me for worship, I'm going to state it right now, and then I'm going to break it down, is this. And if you, if you take notes, I just encourage you to write this down. And, and I believe that this is biblical. And I believe that um, for many of you who maybe are confused about what worship is and have defined it to be merely a set of songs sung before um, a message and after, um, I, I want to turn that upside down on its head because I would argue that music is not worship. Uh, music is an expression of what should be a worshiping heart. Um, so worship is this. This is the, the definition that the, the Spirit literally gave to me. And that is that worship begins in submission, that it is initiated by the Spirit, that it is defined by truth, and it is expressed in love. Worship begins in submission, is initiated by the Spirit, is defined by truth and expressed in love. And so I, I want us to, to think through what worship is. And I, I put that definition out there first because we're going to look at each one of those elements today. And we're going to be looking at John chapter 4. Uh, many of you are probably familiar with this story, but it's the, the story of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, and Jesus' interaction with her. And it's fascinating that the most uh, explicit instruction around worship found in the Bible uh, is in this interaction with uh, something that would have been scandalous to the Jews, and that was an interaction with the Samaritan who, uh, who were uh, abhorred by the Jews as being uh, a, a mixed bag, both racially and spiritually, um, as well as a woman, which would never have been done, and even beyond that, a woman whose, uh, whose past was, uh, was anything but kosher. <laughs> uh, a woman who literally had been, with, uh, been married five times and was living with, uh, w- with the man when Jesus speaks with her. And yet Jesus, in classic Jesus style, uh, identifying himself with those who are the most marginalized, the most... The, the, those who are on the outside, it is to this woman that he explains what worship is. And if you remember, the woman is asking a series of questions, and if I could sum it up into, into one question, she's asking the universal question, if there's a God, where do I find him? And what Jesus goes to do is he begins to explain to her that, that God is not found in any particular place, but because of my arrival, um, God can be experienced anywhere. And she talks about, I, I've heard that the Messiah is coming, and, he's, and he says, he who you are speaking with is, is him. I am the Messiah. And because of me, 
I'm changing the rules on how worship is to take place. Now, I want you guys to first note this, that worship is something that we are created for. It is our eternal occupation. I think that this is, is essential. A.W. Tozer, in his, in his classic little book called Worship the Missing Jewel, said, if we do not worship God seven days a week, we do not worship him one day a week. And so we have to ask, what is worship then? And worship, I would say, is defined by whatever it is that we give our devotion to. That word worship is an old English word. It comes, it is made up of two words, worth-ship. That is whatever it is that we ascribe worth to or value to. And God has placed eternity in, in man's heart, as the book of Ecclesiastes says in chapter 3, that, that God has placed eternity in the heart of man. And, and what that tells us is that because we are made in the image of God and we were essentially made for relationship with God, but through sinfulness, we actually lost our knowledge of God. Uh, We lost our knowledge of ourselves. Uh, And in doing so, our worship uh, was, uh, was then given to everything but God. In fact, this is the condemnation that comes forth in Romans chapter one, is that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. It says, for what may be known of God is manifest in creation, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that people are without excuse. And it says that although they knew God, uh, it, it says that they suppressed the truth, they pushed it down, and although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but it says that their, their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise, they became fools, and therefore God gave them over. Uh, and their worship then, they, it says that they worshiped and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And so we have given our worship foolishly to all sorts of things. And all you want to you know where the, the great places of worship are, um, go to our great our, our, our sporting arenas, you know, our, our football fields, our baseball stadiums. You know, these are, these are the places of worship. Uh, we worship ardently um, at the foot of the great God entertainment. Uh, But I would say even more importantly, we live in an age of secularization where we worship more than anything ourselves. And so when we ask that question, I want you to know that it's startling when you begin to realize that everyone worships you. Every person in this room worships. You are ascribing worth and value to something. It's whatever it is that captivates the majority of your thought life. And so I want to ask you up front, would you say that what, what draws your deepest affection, what you spend the majority of your time thinking about, is it Jesus? Because it begins to show naturally the idolatry of the human heart, doesn't it? As Calvin once said, that the human heart is an idol factory. It's like a string of idols. You pull up one and you discover a hundred more. And this is why we have to constantly come to a place in which we, uh, we in, in surrender, and this is why I say worship begins in submission, is that through our surrender, we only then can we discover what the true object of worship ought to be. I think about this word in both the Hebrew and the Greek, and it gives us some incredible insight because in the Hebrew, the word worship means to bow down. Uh, 
it's to prostrate oneself, to literally put yourself in a position of your, you are recognizing. When God, think about Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, he sees the Lord high and lifted up and his robe fills the throne of God. He's given this vision of the throne room of God and it says that he fell upon his face, that is worship. And he cried out, woe is me, I'm a man of unclipped clean lips who lives amongst a people of unclean lips. And so there you have this incredible picture of that, that positioning of oneself. I recognize your greatness and I bow myself down to say that, that you must be glorified, you must be exalted. I must, as John the Baptist said, I must decrease that he might increase. In the Greek... It's a word that, um, uh, proskenayu, and it's a, it's, a, it's a strange word, and no one fully knows exactly what it means. There's lots of speculation. Um, but the most basic interpretation of this word is to kiss the hand or to lick the hand like a dog. And we're like, what a weird word. But why does a dog ever, what do you do when you meet a dog that you've never met before? You put your hand out. You pray to God that it doesn't, if you're scared of big dogs like I am, you pray to God that it doesn't bite you. And if it licks you, um, it, it is basically saying that it's, it's essentially submitted to you. It's, it's recognizing you as the alpha male in that moment. Uh, and so there is, a, there is a, I think, a, a really beautiful, but for us, lick the hand gets a little weird when we think about it being our worship of God. I don't really want to even metaphorically lick God's hand. But I do, I do want to kiss the hand, that heart of affection. And so true worship, I would say, is discovery. It's discovery. We are called to learn what God is like. I, this is why I believe that the deepest uh, devotion to Jesus comes out of deep theological reflection. Uh, I think that our worship is only as deep as our knowledge and understanding of Jesus. And so when I say deep theological reflection, I'm not talking about abstract ideas about things that we cannot understand, but I am talking about that which has been granted to us through our reconciliation with God through Jesus, that this is eternal life, Jesus said in John 17, that they may know you, the living God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent, that the Christian life, that a disciple, by very definition, is a learner. It's one who learns. This is why I, I don't like the word discipleship, because it's not in the New Testament. Disciple is always a noun. It is what someone is who is truly following Jesus. We are learners of Christ. And so our worship is, true, is discovery of, what, of who Christ is. Isn't this what Paul says? I mean, one of the most beautiful expressions of worship is when Paul says that he says, this is what drives everything I do, that I may know him, that I may partake of him, that I may even know him in his sufferings as well as his victories. Is that the drive of your heart? I think the beauty of worship is that discovery that leads us to a place of adventure, Worship itself does not invoke the presence of God. Rather, worship is a response to the presence of God. It's like Jacob when he wakes up from his vision in Genesis where he has the vision of the ladder to heaven. Um, and it says when he awoke from his sleep, what did he say? He said he worshiped. 
and he, and he, built, he basically built an altar, and he said, God is in this place, and I did not know it. I did not perceive it. Jesus says, when two or more gather in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Do you believe that Jesus is here right now? Worship is discovery of a God who has been present. We're going to sing a song after, after the message called Enclosed by You that I wrote a long time ago that is driven by uh, the need. Often I write my songs as, as prayers um, uh, and that come out of my theological reflection to remind myself of what God is like as he has chosen to reveal himself to be like through his scriptures. And one of the things that Jesus says is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so in the song, it's me and the verses saying, Lord, will you stay with me when I forget you're there? Will you, will you still love me when my love lingers elsewhere? And then Jesus responds with, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you waiting around. For it's I'm the one who's been waiting for you to turn around. And see, this is the thing is that God wants us to be the ones who, he, he is the lifter of our heads that we might recognize that we don't worship a God who is detached or distant, but we worship a God who is here, who is available, who is present. The soul's ability to know Christ in increasing degrees of intimacy would be the reality of what true worship is. So what is false worship then? False worship, on the other hand, is to attribute worth to an illusion. It's, it's not really there or it's not really worthy. We think of our false worship uh, in, uh, in regards to our stars, in regards to our athletes, uh, to, to rock stars and actors. Um, we think of even the false worship that we give at times to our spouses and to our children, to our jobs. Uh, and those things prove again and again uh, that they cannot ultimately satisfy that space that only God can fill. And so I, I want to keep encouraging you. I think that as modern people, we have to keep asking, what is the, the, the driving urge of our lives? What, what do we find ourselves filled up by? Or what do we believe will fill us up? Because often this is how we think as human beings. If I get to this place, then I will be what? Happy. If I could get where he is, then I will be satisfied. This is why I think it's such a, I was sharing this with the guys, it's such a devastating blow when someone like Robin Williams um, commits suicide because here we are, many of us have grown up watching his films, his television, me all the way back to Mork and Mindy, even having his rainbow suspenders in grade school and having a Mork and Mindy lunch pail. I mean, it was a, like, that's, that's almost 40 years of following this guy on television and then he, refle- he represents to us what all stars represent, those who have reached the pinnacle of human experience, those who have made it all the way to the top in the, the place where we think if we could get to, we would be happy like them. And then they take their own life. And in the example that I gave, I'm like, the reason that it affects us so deeply isn't because so much that we care about that person. It's because it's a, it's a slap in the face to what we believe would bring ultimate satisfaction. It's like these stars, uh, the example I, I gave to the guys is they climb to the top of a mountain and we are only at base camp and we're too tired to even begin the climb. But we think, you know, 
if they could tell us that it's worth climbing up, up to the top, then we'll, we'll, we'll begin that dangerous climb. It's like they get up to the top and, they, and, and they, they look back down to us at base camp and they're like, you guys don't even bother, there's actually nothing up here. And then they jump off the other side. It's very disheartening. It's, like, it's, it's disturbing. Um, but this shows why false worship is an illusion that brings great devastation to the human soul. So why must we worship? Look at John chapter 4, verse 23, what Jesus says to this woman. He says, The hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit, in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship. And Jesus, in saying this, the, the hour is coming, and now is. So it is arrived, because I have arrived. With the arrival of Jesus is the arrival of a new day. It's, a, it's the moment when time turned itself. The gospel is summed up in one word, Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh. God has, has revealed his glory is not his, his sinlessness. His glory is his willingness to enter into human brokenness and identify himself with us. And he says, Jesus has come not only to deal with our brokenness and our sin, but to restore to us a right knowledge of God. And he says, the hours come, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. So the first thing is that, is that worship, worship, why we must worship is because we need it. We need it. Why does he desire it? Why is God seeking it? God doesn't desire or seek anything uh, unless he knows that we need it. For true worship is what brings us into contact with life. Jesus says, I am the, the way, the truth, and the what? Life. He says, the Son of Man has come to give life and to give it to you what? Abundantly. And so true worship is something that we need. The Father seeks it. Because he knows that we need it. Because God is seeking that which is lost, which is you. And now that you are found, it is that he might bring you into contact with life. God is in the business of seeking and saving that which is lost. He is trying to restore to humanity that which we need, which is true worship. Because true life comes through interaction, intimacy with the living God. Worship is a human response to a divine initiative. And I think that we need to understand that. He seeks, he draws, he persuades, and we respond. We respond. Christ came to restore true worship. The other reason is because we have lost it. He seeks it because we lost it. The church has lost its depth by turning its gatherings, this is what Tozer has to say, into a man-centered event. For decades now, we have focused more, and this is crazy, Tozer wrote this in the 50s. I think he would not turn over in his grave if he was alive today. I think that he would keep rolling um, to a, I don't know what that would be if you're already dead, but this is what I think. I'm just trying to give you a a picture of how far we've come. Uh, Now we have focused more on our needs rather than God's glory. We have been so busy prescribing band-aids for human wants that we have forgot that presenting the worship of Jesus is the key to the church's power as well as personal fulfillment. 
profound. So the question then is, how do we worship? So I've explained to you what true worship is. I've told you why we need to worship. But the question we must answer is, how then do we worship? And what does Jesus say in verse 24? God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. If we do not worship seven days a week, we do not worship one day a week. So here is what I would say. Worship, we worship God through God by God. Or I should say, we worship God by God through God. For true, the Father is looking for true worshipers to worship in spirit and in truth. Truth for us is not, uh, not knowledge, but it is someone. For Jesus said, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. So notice, the Father is seeking worship, true worshipers who will worship, uh, what is it? Through the Spirit, by the Son. In the Spirit, through the Son. So, worship begins in submission. Here is the first, the first key. I'm going to move through these pretty quickly. So, in order for me to, to defend this position that worship begins in submission, I would have to take you to the first mention of worship, which is found in Genesis chapter 22. What is Genesis chapter 22? Key chapter. It's one of those chapters you usually just have earmarked in your mind. For it's a key chapter to understanding the entire trajectory of the, of the redemptive story of the scriptures. Genesis chapter 22 is the story of Abraham and the request that God made of him to do what? Sacrifice his son. Now, Abraham takes his son and, and God is basically testing the devotion of Abraham. Abraham had, had waited until... Uh, God had made Abraham and Sarah wait uh, for their son uh, until their bodies were beyond the ability to actually produce, until, until she was past the age uh, of, of an ability to give birth to a son, that God might do a miraculous work to show that his work is always by grace. It's always by, by what he has done, not what we do for him. And so what happens is that the son is given, and now Abraham's affection is is, you know, and I'm reading between the lines, but there is a deep affection given uh, to Isaac. And God says, I know, Abraham, that you have withheld nothing from me. You've, you've followed me. Remember, it says that Abraham went, got up and he followed the Lord. When the, when the Lord called him back in Genesis 12 and, and gives him the covenant and the promise, remember what it says about Abraham in Hebrews, that Abraham got up and he went not knowing where he was going. It's kind of the beauty of Jesus saying, follow me and never saying where we're going. Uh, this is a true step of faith. And it says, and it was accounted um, that his faith was accounted to him as righteousness. But here is the fulfillment of that promise in Isaac. And God says, I know you've not withheld anything from me. So I'm going to ask you to, to give me your son, your only son. Doesn't even acknowledge Ishmael. He says, give me your son, your, your only son. And so Abraham goes up to the mountain. And here is the first mention of worship in the Bible. Genesis is a book of origins, and it is a book where first mentions are found. If you want to get an understanding of the words that we use so prevalently in the church, and I think that our vocabulary matters, guys. You need to know what grace means, what faith means, what worship means, because it is the thing, it, like I said, our worship is, it finds its robustness through deep theological reflection. Genesis 22, verse 5, and Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, the lad and I will go yonder and what? 
worship. Was he saying to his servants, hey, Isaac and I are going to go over the hill and we're going to sing Kumbaya? No, because that song is maybe one of those songs that we shouldn't sing. Uh, and it didn't exist then. Um, and so, uh, so, you know, this isn't what was happening. It wasn't singing songs. What he was saying is that we're going over to sacrifice to Yahweh. We're going over to make a, a sacrifice to Yahweh. And the sacrifice was defined by Abraham's full surrender of that which was dearest to him. That which was dearest to him. You see, we need to understand this about submission. When Jesus made those insane statements that unless one hates their mother and father, they are not worthy of being my disciples, he isn't talking, he's using, he's using those incredible Jewish idioms to paint intense contrast. And what he's essentially saying, obviously we're called to honor our mother and father. So what does he mean by that? What he is, what he is saying is that your devotion to me should be of such an intensity that even the deepest affections that you hold for others would look like hatred in comparison. It's deeply disturbing when we recognize that to be a follower of Jesus means that to to taste of his grace, to know his love, should produce in us a love for him. And that love is meant to grow in increasing degrees of intimacy. Our covenant loyalty to Christ should actually produce within our hearts affection for him. Can you say, can you say honestly, I love Jesus? Our submission, our surrender is the key to entering into that love. And honestly, It says that even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. But it does say that if we deny him, he will deny us before the Father. And do we deny him our affection? Because Jesus' great condemnation to the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 was what? He says, hey, I pray... Good kudos, guys, on your service, on your sound doctrine. Kudos on your, on your, your sexual purity. Kudos on all of those things. Great job. You know, five stars. Thumbs up. But I have this against you. You have lost your first love. Do you recognize that the Christian life is truly meant to be a sacred romance? Do you know what sacred romance is? Sacred romance, romance, what romance is, is that is a combination of that which is familiar, cozy like home, and an adventure all at once. I understand this because I feel endlessly, I am a hopeless romantic. and maybe the reason that I write good worship songs is because I was raised on really good 70s super ballads. And, you know, if you want to write good worship songs, you just have to listen to a lot of bread. Remember that band, Bread? If you don't know who they are, you've missed some really important things that you need to go and spend deep theological reflection and some concentrated time with some great love songs of the 70s. I mean, we need to listen to more make-out music. Uh, and... Uh, and, and I think, but honestly, our wor- what is worship? It's, it's, it's a reflection. It's meant to be a reflection of that sacred romance. Every true romance, the marriage covenant, is meant to be a visible picture of our invisible relationship with the living God. We are the bride of Christ. Guys, if you don't like that metaphor, you just got to live with it. 
Uh, and, uh, and this is the reality, is that, that surrender, submission, isn't every marriage. Every marriage that I, that I counsel that's falling apart is due to the lack of surrender on either one side or both sides, both parties. The key to our relationship with Jesus is that we are responding to his surrender on our behalf. For what does it say in Philippians 2 about Jesus? That he submitted himself to the point of death. He humbled himself. He emptied himself. There is total surrender. Surrender to the will of the Father, and the will of the Father was identify yourself fully with with humanity. For he loves us, and he wants to create in our hearts a love that comes back to him. Our worship is a response to what he has already done for us in Christ. The more robustly we understand the gospel, the more we will understand the call to submission. Surrender is our safeguard. James 4, 7 says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. How do you resist the devil? By submitting to God. That's what James is getting at. You want to enter into spiritual warfare? Just stay close to Jesus and let him fight for you through your submission, the giving of yourself fully to him. What surrender means is to arrange oneself under. What you're saying is that when you say, God, your kingdom come, you are saying, obviously, my kingdom go. Our surrender to Christ is saying, it's, Jesus is not here to be our savior, and then his lordship is somehow optional. He is Lord of lords. In fact, he is the Lord of every human being that has ever lived and will ever live because there will be a day when every knee will bow whether you have accepted him as savior or not. There's no escaping that. The work of the cross was a work that was established for all people actually. Not, it didn't create the possibility of salvation. It actually obtained salvation for all people. That doesn't mean that all will be saved because the gospel is a gospel of freedom. And God sets a man, a woman, a, a boy, a girl free to respond to that which they have, he has already done for them in Jesus. And the impossible possibility is that we can say no to that work. We must understand that Jesus has surrendered all for us. Why would we not surrender all for him? We love him only because he first loved us. Surrender is our logical worship. This is what Romans 12, 1 says. I beseech you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is holy, acceptable to God. This is your, some translations say, reasonable service, but an even better translation would be, this is your logical worship. So worship begins in submission. Honestly, the Christian life begins in submission. I put my faith in Christ and still was miserable for a year. It wasn't until I surrendered my life to Christ and gave him my full allegiance that I began to experience the joy and the deep satisfaction of what it means to know him. I've always said that if there is any gift that God, that I feel comfortable stating that I have, that has been um, a particular reason why I've been able to lead the church that I'm leading. It's not because of eloquence or intelligence. I would argue that n- neither of those things are necessarily my gift. I think that my greatest gift is that I actually really love Jesus. <laughs> and people sense that. That is compelling to the lost. 
not how much we know, but how much we love the one whom we say we believe in. That compels people to say, I would like what they have. So it is initiated by the Spirit. Worship is not confined to things. This is why I am leery of, of Eastern Orthodoxy, even though I believe there's, you can be absolutely a true follower of Jesus and, and be a part of the Eastern Orthodox Church, but I'm leery of, of any time we give objects, material objects, power. Uh, and I think that the, the, the danger of idolatry, now I know the purpose is to, to set the heart in a place where they can worship, but it's not, worship is not, I mean, you're in a, in a high school gym. That's about as unsexy as you get for, uh, for a, you know, if we're going to, if we could rate the sexiness of church buildings, this would be a, a low zero, okay? Uh, um, but... You know, where, you know, this is why the Catholic Church built these beautiful cathedrals. I remember going into the cathedral at the top of Toledo, Spain, which is the oldest city in, uh, in Europe. It's a 2,000-year-old Moorish city. And the cathedral's unbelievable. It's like this gaudy. I mean, there's just walls of gold and so many statues that, it, like, I was scared the whole time I was in there. Um, but all of it was to create a sacred space. Um, by which one could, you know, that was, it was meant to exalt the holiness of God. But like I said, his holiness is not divine, defined by his separateness. His holiness is defined by his willingness to identify himself with our brokenness. And this is why Jesus says that you will not, your worship is not confined to the place. For you, the church, is what makes the space beautiful. Door of Hope, we are in a beautiful building now, a 100-year-old German congregational church. It's simple, but it's extremely elegant. And I, believe me, I'm an aesthetic snob, so spaces really matter to me. Uh, but the building that we were in for four and a half years, which is the building I miss the most, I love our new church, but I really miss the annex because I liked its nasty stained orange carpet and its bad 1960s modifications and the fact that in the summer it just smelled like a, a dirty locker room because Portland is dirty hipsters, you know. It's like, it's like patchouli and sweat and just everything else that goes with that kind of yumminess. And, um, and, and I'm like, why did I love that space? Because I loved what the Spirit of God was doing in that time. That's what I loved about it. And so, you know, we, for us, we need to understand that it's initiated by the Spirit. It's not initiated by the place. This is why we shouldn't, our worship shouldn't be confined to coming to church and singing some songs and then going home and living as we want. Our worship is defined by our surrender to the kingship of Christ each and every day, every moment of every day. So that when we do come together, our songs sung together corporately is a reflection of that worshiping heart. But that is something that is initiated by the Spirit. He says the Father is looking for worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth. That we cannot worship apart from being born again. That there needs to be regeneration. There needs to be the baptism of the Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit is not something that happens separately from your conversion, for baptism speaks of immersion into something. Uh, it's in what, what God is calling is that when we come into new life, we are, we are immersed into the life of Christ and his spirit comes into us and we are in him and he is in us. And it is that that gives us to worship because we now, as the people of God, are his temple. So worship is not confined to things, 
which means the gifts of God must be gifts of the Spirit. Worship that is not confined to places. Remember what he says in 21, you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father, which means our worship is not limited by location, but becomes perpetual in worship that is cultivated by the Spirit. For the Spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, it says in Proverbs, who searches all the inner depths of his heart. And so the Spirit of God placed within us, the Spirit yearns, is eager to bring us bring us into a deeper knowledge and intimacy of God, empowering us. Even our worship of God must come from God. Notice that. Notice that. Only the Holy Spirit can fully unveil within our heart, heart God's worth. This is why Jesus said in John 16, 13, and 14, however, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into what? All truth, which brings me to the next. It is defined by truth. Worship begins in submission. It's initiated by the Holy Spirit. And if you want to know more about the Holy Spirit, I I know last time I was here, I gave two messages on the Holy Spirit. I'm sure Ted's given many. I think a a healthy, robust theology of the Spirit is is needed in the church today. Um, But it's defined by truth, which is God's self-disclosure. Now, we live, what's so difficult about this is that we live in a time when truth has been redefined. It means something else now. And it can't mean anything other than Jesus. For Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to the Father but through me. The essence, Tozer said, of all idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. The more in tune we are with the living God as he has disclosed himself to us through his scriptures, the more we come into contact with the reality to be defined in truth means that our worship must be sincere. Philippians 1.10 that says that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense, that you'd put away the hypocrisy, that there wouldn't be false worship, which means that the heart is genuine in its expression of its love. To say it's defined by truth means that it is a worship that is free. For John 8.32, Jesus says, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall what? Make you free. Isn't it beautiful to think that our worship True worship that, is done in, the worship that is done in spirit and in truth actually brings greater liberty to our lives and that when we, our worship is false, it actually brings bondage and enslavement. That Jesus comes to set us free. And finally, it is expressed in love. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30 says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the Shema. This is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's the great commandment. It's, it's a call to a whole person, covenantal commitment to the living God. She'll love the God with all your heart, soul, all your mind, all your strength. That's the whole person. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Christ came and died and rose again to restore our worship. And he is seeking for us to respond. And the, the ultimate litmus test for whether we are truly worshiping is it does it increase your love for God and does it increase your love for one another? Evangelism begins, according to Jesus in John 13, by this they will know that you are my, dis- my disciples. By what? By your love for one another. True worship gives us the capacity to live in sacrificial service to one another.
the expression of true worship is that I understand the outrageous generosity of God toward me in Christ. And my life has been turned upside down because he has brought assurance to my heart through the, through the gift of his spirit. As his spirit is bringing me into an, an ever-increasing knowledge of the living Christ, for it is through Christ that I discover what God is like. And my worship becomes sincere, and my worship is setting me free. Free to do what? Not free to do whatever you want, but it sets you free to do what is right, which is to love God more and to love others fully, which is our worship. Notice it has nothing to do with songs. So now when we go into this time of worship and communion, when you sing, I want it to be sincere. I want it to be free. But it, it's, it, it's, it's because it's coming out of a life that worships. If you feel challenged by that, convicted by that, if you can't answer the simple question that Jesus posed to Peter, which is the ultimate question that each one of us must reckon with. With the first, it's funny, the two ultimate questions that we must reckon with were both asked of Peter. The first one is, who do you say that I am? And And he says, you're the Christ, you're the son of God. The second ultimate question was given to Peter and when he said after his resurrection, do you love me? And he says, yes, Lord. And then what does he say? Then feed my sheep. In other words, if you love me, it's got to be reflected in a love for one another. This is our true worship. Worship begins in what? It's not a trick question. (laughs) Come on. You're not that idiot. It begins in what? Submission. It's initiated by who? It's defined by what? And it is expressed in? Let's pray.